Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is uh, Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Archie Brown. Professor Brown is Professor Emeritus of Politics at Oxford University. He has held any number of prestigious academic positions, including Professor of Politics at Oxford, sub-warden at St. Anthony's College at Oxford. He's also been the director of the Russian and Eastern European Center, again at Oxford. He is author of a number of very well-received books dealing mostly with the former Soviet Union. And today we are speaking about his latest book, The Human Factor, Gorbachev, Reagan, and Thatcher, and the End of the Cold War, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Brown. Thank you. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? I suppose I'm arguing against the view that the Soviet Union was forced by American military buildup or by economic pressure to more or less surrender and uh, say that the West won the Cold War. Um, I'm arguing that... um, the strength of the West vis-à-vis the Soviet Union was actually much greater in relative terms at a time when communism was expanding in the 1940s, 1950s, um, and uh, communism continued to expand in the 60s. And it wasn't until the early 1970s that the Soviet Union had a rough parity in military terms with the United States. So it would be very strange if at a time when the United States was manifestly stronger uh, communism expanded, but the Soviet Union decided they had no alternative but to give up um, at a time when they had the capacity utterly to destroy the United States. Each side could destroy the other. So there's something I'm arguing against, and I'm also arguing for something for. I'm arguing that individual leaders were enormously important in the Cold War ending when it did. And in particular, I'm arguing that Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, was of decisive importance for that outcome. Uh, What was Mikhail Gorbachev's background like, and how did it differ from those of Prime Minister Thatcher and President Reagan? What's remarkable, really, is that um, Gorbachev was someone with a very open mind. Indeed, one could argue that he had a more open mind than either Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher, and yet he was someone who rose up through the hierarchy of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Uh, But he was somebody who was open to new ideas and his ideas kept developing. Uh, So he he was fortunate in a way that he became the regional party secretary of a part of the Soviet Union, Stavropol uh, territory, which was a spa territory and um, top Soviet leaders used to take their holidays there. People like um, Kosygin and uh, Suslov and Andropov 
and the regional party secretary had to meet them. He had to be their host. And so he had an opportunity to, to impress these top leaders from Moscow. And so when the secretary of the Central Committee responsible for agriculture died suddenly in 1978, the person they turned to to bring into the top leadership team was Gorbachev, who at that time, at the age of 47, was the youngest member of the top leadership team. Would it be correct to say that Gorbachev's ideological posture circa the spring of 1985 was basically that of a Leninist modernizer? Possibly, um, you could say that. um, He certainly still had a very high regard for Lenin at that time. He was already, I think, more of a reformer than that phrase suggests. Uh, I mean, he said to his wife on the eve of becoming Soviet leader, we can't go on living like this. He had been impressed by his visits to the West, not only by higher living standards, but by the relative tolerance, the the competitive um, elections, the fact that people spoke freely and disagreed with one another in front of him, whereas in the Soviet delegation, um, they felt some compulsion to agree. So um, I would say he had already a more reformist intent than the phrase Leninist modernizer would suggest, but he continued to develop and his views continued to change throughout his period of less than seven years as Soviet leader. How important, if at all, was Gorbachev's trip to the United Kingdom in late 1984 in changing his future outlook on both foreign and domestic politics in the Soviet Union? I think all of Gorbachev's visits to the West uh, up to that point were important, including visits to other West European countries and also to Canada in 1983 when he formed um, a friendship with Alexander Yakovlev, who at that time was the um, Soviet ambassador to Canada and who became a key ally of Gorbachev um, in Moscow subsequently. But the visit to Britain in December 1984 was especially important. It lasted almost a week. And um, Gorbachev formed a, a good relationship with Margaret Thatcher. He had five hours with her. Um, they had lunch and then the talked and argued over lunch and then continued to the conversation after lunch. And uh, though they disagreed, um, they finished up with mutual respect. And this was three months before Gorbachev became Soviet leader. At that time, he was number two in the Soviet hierarchy, but Chernyenko was um, in declining health. Um, So the fact that uh, Margaret Thatcher established a relationship with Gorbachev three months uh, before he became leader Uh, was something he appreciated, and the fact that she spoke well of him when she went to see um, President Reagan in Camp David uh, shortly after. And uh, so it was valuable for Gorbachev, and it was also valuable for Margaret Thatcher. What was American President Reagan's worldview as it related to the Soviet Union circa January 1981 at the commencement of his administration? At the the very outset of his administration, President Reagan believed that the Soviet Union had been taking advantage of the United States, that um, the United States had been much too soft in dealing with the Soviet Union, that uh, a big arms buildup was necessary. 
and uh, he wanted to put pressure on the Soviet Union. Uh, so one could argue that um, Reagan believed in peace through strength, but the strength component was very much more to the fore at the beginning of his presidency uh, than later. Uh, later, you began to see that there was also a peace component. And that was sometimes mentioned in his speeches, but in Moscow they didn't take it very seriously. All they saw was um, aggressive rhetoric and uh, military build-up, uh, and they got quite concerned about this. Would it be correct to say that even in the beginning of his administration, that is President Reagan, that his view of the Soviet Union differed from those of, say, Richard Pipes on the National Security Council staff, uh, Richard Pearl in the Defense Department, and uh, the Defense Department chief, Caspar Weinberger? I would say at the beginning, um, Reagan's views were pretty close to the, the, their views. Um, and that was um, at the time when Al Haig was Secretary of State, um, and which um, is before George Shultz became Secretary of State. Uh, I think that um, it was only in 1983 that you began to see a significant change in um, emphasis, at least from President Reagan. Um, I mean, 1983 was a year in which the Cold War got colder, because in March of that year, Reagan, on the one hand, described the Soviet Union as a, an evil empire and said that the struggle was a struggle between good and evil, which you know seemed to be putting the United States and the Soviet Union on a real collision course. And also in that same month, he announced the attempt to develop anti-missile defense, the STI, Strategic Defense Initiative, which again concerned the Soviet Union greatly and indeed concerned a number of America's European allies because they thought it was likely to contravene the 1972 anti-ballistic missile treaty. So the Cold War was getting colder, but um, later that year, um, Reagan um, began to change his emphasis. And one reason I would say, you mentioned Richard Pipes, was that Richard Pipes had returned to his Harvard professorship in late 1982. And in 1983, the person who became the top Soviet specialist on the National Security Council uh, became Jack Matlock. And whereas Pipes had been very much against um, Reagan meeting with Soviet leaders, he thought that summit meetings did more harm than good, and was against engagement, Matlock was very much in favor of engagement. And then, of course, even more important was um, uh, George Shultz becoming Secretary of State. And Shultz had more influence over Reagan than Haig had. Um, he was also more highly regarded by Nancy Reagan, and that was not unimportant because the president took seriously her judgment of different people. So I think these other personnel changes also illustrate the human factor that um, other senior officials below the head of government can also make a difference. Would you agree with uh, former Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford's uh, statement about President Reagan that he was, quote, an amiable dunce, unquote? No, I certainly wouldn't agree with that. Um, I mean, Reagan did not have the sharpest intellect uh, in his administration, but he had um, a lot of sense and uh, 
political instincts. Um, I mean, Gorbachev, in a meeting with um, Soviet ambassadors at one point, um, referred to his um, political flair and, and instinct, uh, and, and that was not unimportant. Um, he certainly had some political skills. Uh, so I think, you know, amiable dunce um, is, is not a very fair description of him. What were the uh, views of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher at the beginning of her um, term in office in May 1979 on the former Soviet Union? Margaret Thatcher's views at that time were very close to Ronald Reagan's. Uh, she believed that... Um, the West had been too weak um, vis-à-vis the Soviet Union. There was a need for a military build-up, a need for more aggressive um, ideological um, confrontation, um, taking on Soviet um, propaganda. And uh, she, for example, took quite a dim view of the British Foreign Office. She thought that they were much too ready to compromise and um, they were not standing up to the Soviet Union in the way they should. So I would say that, you know, she and Reagan thought eye to eye on foreign policy, especially in particular policy towards the communist world and the Soviet Union in particular. Uh, how and why was the Chequers Seminar of September 1983 so important in the reshaping of British-Soviet policy? Well, that was important because at that point, the Foreign Secretary, Geoffrey Howe, and the Foreign Office had for some time been in favour of British re-engagement, uh, or engagement at least, with um, the communist world. And they felt that things were getting very dangerous, that the, with the Cold War getting colder, people there, there could be mistakes which would lead to tra- catastrophic nuclear war, uh, because in times of high tension, um, if you get um, technical malfunction, it seems as if missiles are coming in, so what do you do? So there are lots of problems which um, the Foreign Office had not succeeded in getting Margaret Thatcher to take sufficiently seriously from their point of view. And uh, she was persuaded that it would be a good idea to have a seminar which would look at Britain's relations with the communist world and assess what was happening in the Soviet Union in particular. And so the Foreign Office suggested some people who should come to that meeting should be the experts, and they came mainly from the Foreign Office, and she absolutely rejected those names. And so eight names eventually were produced, all outsiders. Seven of the eight were university teachers, so I was one of them. And uh, when it came to the... We all wrote papers, which... um, were our assessment of what was happening in different spheres in the Soviet Union. And uh, she read these very carefully, underlined them, and uh, from her questioning, it was absolutely clear that she'd taken them seriously. And we spoke for 10 minutes elaborating these points. And uh, the seminar went on all day. Uh, And at one point um, after lunch, she asked us for our policy recommendations, which came as a surprise to us because we thought we were there to provide knowledge that would be useful for her. We didn't expect to be asked, you know, what we thought policy should be. But nevertheless, our advice was that uh, the more contacts, the better, and at all levels, from dissidents to general secretaries. Um, So as it happened, our our advice um, in favor of engagement uh, was very similar to the advice she was getting from the Foreign Office, though we didn't know 
what was in the Foreign Office papers that were going to 10 Downing Street. So I think that helped to reinforce the Foreign Office position. And from that time onwards, um, the government papers now declassified speak about a new policy. Um, this phrase comes in several times, a new policy, and there'll be no public announcement of it. Now it's to be a policy of engagement with the communist world. Was a few months later, Mrs. Thatcher went to Hungary, communist state, and um, Geoffrey Howe, within a year, visited every Warsaw-packed capital. And then this led indirectly, but in a sense it flowed from that Checker seminar, uh, an invitation in the summer of 1984, went to Gorbachev specifically to come to Britain, and he came in December of that year. So I think there's no doubt from the government papers that that seminar was a turning point. Uh, what was the Geneva summit of 1985 of any importance, and if so, why? The main importance of the Geneva summit was that Reagan and Gorbachev met and uh, they got on well. Uh, it didn't really have any concrete results, but the previous summit between um, an American president and a Soviet leader had been between Jimmy Carter and Leonid Brezhnev back in 1979, so the six-year gap. So its significance was simply that it took place, and uh, uh, I don't think either side would claim any um, particular concrete results. But that's certainly the view of George Shultz. Uh, he said the most important thing was that the leaders met and, and they got on well. Would you agree with the American academic Jerry Huff that there was, to a limited degree, pluralism in Soviet politics prior to Gorbachev? Uh, not at all, no. Um, I think that um, we have to be very careful about the use of terminology there, that um, uh, pluralism for me means that there are organizations with independent um, political resources within the society and uh, the, the organization, organizational aspect is important. I mean, what was the case um, is that there was a diversity of view within the Soviet Communist Party behind the monolithic facade. So I think on the one hand, the people who say, well, it was totalitarian and they all thought the same and uh, they were all a bunch of conformists in, in the Communist Party. I think they're wrong. And on the other side, people who say there was a pluralism, an emerging pluralism in the Soviet Union prior to Gorbachev coming to power, I think they are also wrong. Um, so it's terribly important, in my view, to understand that in this Communist Party of almost 20 million people, there was actually a wide variety of views, but they had to be expressed extremely cautiously in private or between the lines in any publication, not openly. And that's not political pluralism. Why did the Reykjavik summit of uh, 1986 fail, and why did its failure not prevent future forward movement in Soviet-American relations? Well, the Reykjavik summit <clears throat> came very close to um, the leaders agreeing to outlaw nuclear weapons, uh, which uh, horrified Margaret Thatcher because she believed very strongly in nuclear weapons as a de deterrent, and that only failed because of um, Reagan's um, attachment to SDI. He wouldn't compromise on that. And uh, Jack Mathlock, for example, um, thinks that if um, 
George Shultz had persuaded um, Reagan that um, to agree to a moratorium uh, for um, uh, on testing for 10 years, then um, uh, this would have um, been enough to, to secure the agreement. And in fact, you know, 30 years later, the kind of um, anti-ballistic missile comprehensive system that Reagan had in mind has not been developed. So um, <clears throat> it is quite possible that... Um, from Reagan's point of view, nothing would have been lost by making a compromise. But uh, he, that view was not put to him sufficiently strongly, and he was extremely committed to the principle of SDI. Uh, for Gorbachev, it was um, alarming. It wasn't because he thought it would work in the way in which Reagan believed it might work. Uh, there were ways of um, combating it, but the ways of combating it meant um, stepping up the arms race, not stopping it. Uh, I mean, Bill Perry, who was later American Defense Secretary, said the, the obvious way to do it was to have lots of nuclear warheads. Um, some would be m multiple warhead missiles, some would have dummies, some would have nuclear warheads, and it would overwhelm any um, defense system. Uh, Academician Sakharov, um, famous dissident and physicist in the Soviet Union, said the same thing. So there, there were cheaper ways in which the Soviet Union could combat SDI. But um, if SDI went ahead, then it meant that the competition arms and high military expenditure would still continue. And Gorbachev, that was the opposite to the policy he wanted to pursue. Would you say that in retrospect, that it was a mistake of Gorbachev's to not have concentrated on the economy uh, at first, as opposed to domestic politics and foreign affairs? That argument is often made, but um, I think it's not possible. I think that um, the obstacles to marketization, even if Gorbachev at that time had believed in it, uh, were too great. That um, it wasn't only... You know, in order to achieve economic reform, that he gave a higher priority to political reform. But I think it's um, almost certainly the case that um, unless you had um, a political reform, you would not be able to push a radical economic reform through in the Soviet Union. Now, it happened in China, but one reason it happened in China was that the Cultural Revolution had more or less destroyed the bureaucracy. The Cultural Revolution did huge damage but one incidental advantage of it was that there was much less bureaucratic resistance to Deng Xiaoping's um, marketizing economic reforms. So in the Soviet Union, Gorbachev himself was not convinced that you needed um, a fully-fledged market economy. He was happy to entertain the idea of some market elements within the existing system. Uh, but the trouble with the economic system was that um, you know, it really had to be based on command and plan on the one hand, or essentially market prices on the other, and uh, that um, there was massive resistance to the latter. I mean, there were huge economic interests, there were economic ministries, there were departments of the Central Committee which oversaw those uh, ministries, there were regional party officials and throughout the country who all had a role in the um, economic um, administration of the country. So I don't think it was a practical proposition for Gorbachev to start with radical marketizing reform, 
even if at that point he'd believed in it, but he didn't at that point believe in it. It was 1990 before he was persuaded that um, they had to move to an essentially market economy. But even then, it didn't happen under Gorbachev because by that time, the Soviet economy was um, in dire straits. And um, if you had moved to market prices, prices would have shot up and it would have made popular discontent still greater. Can you tell us why Gorbachev's UN speech in December 1988, in your view, practically ended the Cold War, at least ideologically speaking? That was a terribly important speech at the United Nations. Um, He'd made some of the same points earlier that year at the 19th Party Conference of the Communist Party in Moscow, but he developed them further and had a much bigger impact when he made them in December in New York. And uh, the headlines were taken in the next day's paper by the unilateral cuts in Soviet armed forces of half a million that he announced. But um, what was even more important was that the the political philosophy behind the speech, he said that um, the people of every country had the right to decide for themselves what kind of political or economic system they wished to live in and uh, uh, force, um, the military force um, no longer uh, made sense in the nuclear age. It was a very pacific speech and um, the you could say that the people of um, Eastern Europe took him at his word the following year. If Gorbachev says that you know, the people of every country have the right to decide for themselves what kind of system they wish to live in, well, one country after another in um, Eastern and Central Europe um, followed that maxim the, the next year, and uh, communism uh, ceased to prevail on the European continent. Why, after 1989, did, quote, Soviet domestic and foreign policy, unquote, no longer mutually reinforce each other? Well, there were unintended consequences of um, what Gorbachev did. The, the, The fact that the political system had become so much freer, that there were contested elections, um, as well as the countries of Eastern Europe becoming independent and non-communist, that enormously raised expectations among different nationalities in the Soviet Union. Because this is a country with over 100 different nationalities and 15 republics uh, with each bearing the name of a particular nationality. In some of these republics, there had been for a long time Uh, strong nationalist feelings, but they couldn't be expressed openly, or if they were, they led to imprisonment or wars. Uh, That was especially true, of course, of the three Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Um, So the expectations were aroused by Gorbachev's foreign policy, which and the liberalization and democratization of Soviet domestic policy, uh, which um, had led to the independence of the countries of Eastern and Central Europe, and then led to nationalist unrest within the Soviet Union itself. So in those last two years of the Soviet Union, 1990-91, there were constant demonstrations and um, uh, in different republics, not in all of them, but but in some, in in Western Ukraine, uh, Georgia, and the three Baltic republics. And then in Russia itself, 
there were different strands of Russian nationalism, and um, Boris Yeltsin um, took advantage of those. You paint Boris Yeltsin in your book in a rather negative light, as in essence an opportunist out for power. Why is that? Well, I think uh, Boris Yeltsin had his pluses as well as his minuses. Um, he was certainly courageous. Um, he believed in democratization up to a point. He believed in competitive elections if he thought he could win them. Um, he wasn't um, by any means committed to them if he thought he was going to lose. By the time he was president in 1996, he was ready to um, uh, uh, abandon the the idea of having the presidential election in 1996 until he was persuaded by some of the people who had benefited from the privatization of um, Russia's rich natural resources that if they put enough vast sums of money behind his campaign, he could still win. So I, I would say that Yeltsin was um, a populist leader and uh, not really committed to democratic institution building. Gorbachev, I would say, was much more seriously interested in uh, democratic institution building than Yeltsin was. Um, there were times when Yeltsin was playing um, a very useful role um, in, for example, sticking up for the people of the Baltic states um, in the last years of the Soviet Union. Um, but he, he played the Russian card against the Union. He was saying that Russian law um, has supremacy over Soviet law. And, and given that Russia um, had three quarters of the territory of the Soviet Union and half the population, that was almost a death blow to the Union. Now, most Russians uh, regret the breakup of a Union um, because Russia was the dominant partner within it. So you could argue that what Yeltsin did was not really in the national interests of Russians, but it was very much in the interests of getting Boris Yeltsin into the Kremlin and getting Mikhail Gorbachev out of the Kremlin. And that, I think, was the number one concern for Yeltsin. So, in, 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 uh, in essence, you believe that Timothy Colton, in his biography, paints too favorable a portrait of Yeltsin, in retrospect. I think so. Uh, I mean, it's a good biography, and uh, Timothy Colton's a good scholar, but uh, I would say that he is... Um, too negative about um, Gorbachev, and uh, yes, too, too positive um, about Yeltsin. How did President Bush the Elder, uh, how did his Soviet policies differ from those of President Reagan? In the end, they didn't differ very much, uh, but in the beginning, he was incredibly slow to engage with um, the Soviet Union, and this... Um, was um, detrimental for Gorbachev that um, they, they lost momentum and at that time the improved relations were still helping Gorbachev domestically. I think one thing we should remember is that um, you know, the Soviet Union lost 27 million people in the Second World War and uh, the, the war was fought in a terrible way on their own land and so the experience of Russians and Soviet citizens generally of the war was, um, you know, more vivid and, uh, than it was for the average American. And so in the post-war period, the fear of war was a more abstract fear, I think, for the average American. And it was a very real pressing fear for Soviet citizens. 
So in these first years of Gorbachev, when relations with the United States improved immeasurably, um, symbolized by Ronald Reagan's visit to Moscow in the summer of 1988, um, this um, greatly improved east-west atmosphere uh, helped um, Gorbachev and helped um, his policy of domestic reform. Um, So when George Bush took over in 1989, um, nothing happened for a while. And uh, it was not until May 1989 that um, James Baker, Secretary of State, um, made his first ever visit to the Soviet Union and had a meeting with Gorbachev and the Kremlin and with Foreign Minister Shevardnadze. Um, And then later in the year before um, President Bush met with Gorbachev, I mean, Jack Matlock by that time was the American ambassador to Moscow. And from early in the year, he was trying to persuade um, President Bush that it was important to keep the momentum going and uh, engage with the Soviet Union. And he actually had a meeting with Bush in March 1989, but he couldn't persuade him. And it was only when Bush made a European tour in the summer and spoke to leaders both in West Europe and in East Europe, in Hungary and Poland, as well as um, with French and German leaders, that he was persuaded that he should re-engage. So a lot of momentum was lost. But once they took up the conversation, then things went well. And uh, in some ways, um, Bush was a better interlocutor for Gorbachev and Reagan because Reagan was a big picture man, but he didn't... um, you know, have a command of the policy detail, and Gorbachev could have much more detailed conversations with with Bush than he could with Reagan. Would it be correct to say that uh, Gorbachev was indirectly responsible in a positive fashion for the fall of the Berlin Wall? I think absolutely. The point is that expectations um grew enormously in Eastern and Central Europe. It was always the case that when there was some change in Moscow, that that this had a big effect in Eastern Europe. So that when going back to 1956, when Nikita Khrushchev made a speech um, denouncing Stalin, you know, this led to unrest in Eastern Europe and very strong reform movements within communist parties and anti-communist movements from outside. Uh, Big uh, changes in Poland and in Hungary, which ended in a Soviet intervention, a Hungarian revolution, Soviet intervention. So between 1985 and 88, <clears throat> there was um, a liberalization going on in the Soviet Union, a relaxation of international tension. And so the expectations of people in East Central Europe um, rose hugely. Um, And Germany, of course, was a special case because it had been the main enemy of the Soviet Union during the Second World War. And uh, it was especially sensitive for the Soviet leadership. But um, once the East Germans had seen free elections in Poland in uh, 1989, in in which um, solidarity um, in all the seats that they were allowed to competing, and and that was a great many, they absolutely had a landslide victory, and they could see these great changes taking place elsewhere in Central Europe, Uh, and so um, the atmosphere was such that um, 
they could believe that the um, Berlin Wall uh, was opening. There was a strong element of accidental um, uh, and, and, and simply a mistake in, in the breach of the Berlin Wall because an announcement that was made um, <clears throat> was misinterpreted by um, the radio uh, in, in West Germany and then came back to East Berlin that you know the wall was um, now open and then they could leave. That had not been the intention of the East German leadership, but you know, thousands of people turned up at the various um, uh, gates in the wall, and in the end, the, the people in charge of the guards at each um, crossing point had to decide for themselves if they're going to try to shoot these people or let them through. So again, the whole the way in which the whole atmosphere had changed meant that the guards decided, well, the lesser evil was to to let them through. A few years earlier, they'd have shot some people, and then the others would have dispersed. Um, so, uh, you know, when people sometimes say that, um, well, the whole Soviet leadership, you know, accepted um, Gorbachev's policies uh, because uh, there wasn't <clears throat> an attempt to prevent the, the Berlin Wall opening, but I think we have to put a great stress on the how expectations were allowed to rise and indeed were encouraged by the policies Gorbachev pursued. Uh, why was Prime Minister Thatcher so opposed to German unification? In a way, it's a, it's a puzzle that um, she retained this anti-Germanism because you know Gorbachev had a much harder time during the Second World War than she did. She was, at the beginning of the war, a schoolgirl, and then she was an undergraduate um, studying chemistry at Oxford University. And uh, her war meant Russian books and uh, you know, a certain fairly stringent time, but it was absolutely nothing compared with Gorbachev's um, struggle for existence. The, his village was occupied by German troops for five months. For two years, he didn't go to school because there was no school to go to. Um, and his father was away fighting in the war. His mother was working on a collective farm. He, as a boy, had to collect um, firewood to keep the house warm in the winter, otherwise they'd have starved. He had to get fodder for their one cow. Um, it was an incredible struggle for survival. And yet Gorbachev had less anti-German feeling than Margaret Thatcher. So, um, whereas President Bush was very much in favour of German unification, she was against it. In the end, she realised she, she had to go along with it because it was going to happen, uh, but she never really reconciled herself to it. How responsible, directly or indirectly, was Gorbachev for the August 1991 coup attempt? Well, he was responsible in the sense that they hated his policies, the people who mounted the coup, um, he wasn't at all responsible in the sense of being a party to it. I mean, this was a piece of nonsense which um, some conspiracy fanciers in the West produced. And uh, the, very much later, the people who mounted the coup against Gorbachev said, oh, no, he could have left um, this holiday home in Forest um, on the, um, the Crimean coast at any time. Um, you know, as if he could have turned up in Moscow and, and proved that they were fools as well as liars, because you know they'd given a press conference in which they said that Gorbachev was um, uh, ill and, and, too, and unfit to carry out his duties, 
And so they, they formed a committee to, to carry on, and the vice president would assume his powers. Um, no, the fact is that the his holiday area was surrounded by warships, so he couldn't even swim uh, the way. And there was that he had his own guards there, but there was an outer ring of guards around there. Uh, Gorbachev's um, foreign policy advisor and close aide Anatoly Chernyayev uh, was with him throughout, and he's written the best account of this. So no, it, this was um, the there were two things that led to the breakup of the Soviet Union. One was um, uh, two above all. I would say one was um, Boris Yeltsin playing the Russian card against the Union, and the other was the putsch by the hardliners who were hoping to save the Soviet Union. They were wanting to turn the clock backwards and make sure that the Soviet Union didn't lose even an inch of territory, uh, and they finished up accelerating the breakup of the Soviet Union. In terms of ending of the Cold War, uh, why for you was Gorbachev, quote, the indispensable man, unquote, much more so than President Reagan? Well, President Reagan was a mixed blessing for Gorbachev, um, because on the one hand, he, he had this tremendous military build-up and he had his obsessive attraction to um, strategic defense initiative, anti-ballistic missile defense. Um, but he was um, somebody who took seriously the nuclear threat. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the, his policy was one of peace through strength, but he, he, the peace component was there as well. <clears throat> but, you know, if we say that Reagan was indispensable, as some people do. I mean, John Gaddis, for example, has said, you know, without Reagan, there would have been no ending to the Cold War because George Bush, the elder, you know, accepted the Cold War as something that was just going to carry on. He, he wouldn't challenge it, they'd challenge it. But I mean, if you say that no American president other than Reagan could have responded to a Mikhail Gorbachev who was reforming the Soviet Union, who wanted to have a qualitative improvement in East-West relations, who wanted to have verifiable arms control agreements. If you say that, you're taking a very dim view of the American political system. Um, and it seems to me that that's simply wrong because you know, George Bush and James Baker eventually, um, after their slow start, pursued a policy that was very similar to that of latterly of Reagan and Schultz. So I, I think that Reagan played a significant role in ending the Cold War, but he wasn't indispensable for it. Um, Gorbachev was indispensable because we know who the 10 members of the Politburo were when Konstantin Chernyanka died in March 1985. And none of them, I know enough about the views of all of them from interviews, memoirs, <clears throat> documents, None of them would have pursued a policy of pluralization of the Soviet political system, um, abandoning censorship, uh, allowing books like 1984, the works of Alexander Solzhenitsyn um, to be published. None of them would have introduced contested elections. None of them would have allowed expectations to rise in Eastern Europe the way they were. And therefore, 1989 would have been a very different kind of 1989. So, in that sense, Gorbachev was indispensable in the way in which um, the American president was not. 
no, an American, any American president had to be the indispensable partner for Gorbachev because these were the two military superpowers, but it could have been somebody other than Reagan. But the other thing you can say for Reagan is that um, because of his strong anti-communist credentials, um, he had very limited trouble with the right wing of the Republican Party, and so he could deliver. Um, a liberal Republican would have had more trouble, and a liberal Democrat might have had still more trouble in getting um, uh, approval in Washington for the policies. So in that sense, Reagan was useful, but not, I think, indispensable. Why do you believe that, as you put it, uh, Joseph Stalin was ultimately responsible for the demise of the Soviet Union? Well, there is a sense in which he was that um, the Stalin um, incorporated the three Baltic republics in the Soviet Union, the three Baltic states, and also Western Ukraine. And these were the parts of the Soviet Union <clears throat> in which the national, um, national separatist tendencies were strongest. And so if they had not been part of the Soviet Union, it's quite possible, it's indeed likely, that nationalism would have not have taken off to anything like the extent it did. Um, and I think in the absence of um, nationalism in Ukraine and nationalism in the Baltic states, um, Boris Yeltsin and the, the people around him would not have been um, demanding Russian independence from the Union. That would have made no sense. So the... Initial pressure came from the Baltic states, then Western Ukraine joined in, at a certain point Georgia. Uh, but what was the most important um, thing for the breakup was um, the clash between Russia, as represented by Yeltsin, and the all-union authorities, as represented by Gorbachev. So I think, again, in the absence of those territories incorporated by Stalin, um, then <clears throat> the the a smaller union, and not a very much smaller union, would have survived. The other thing is, if you go further back in Soviet history, the administrative organization of the Soviet Union was based on national territories. So, you know, Ukraine, Ukrainians were the dominant nationality there, Georgia, Georgians the dominant nationality, Armenia, Armenians the dominant nationality. So the very fact that the administrative structure of the Soviet Union was based on nationality was important. And in some cases, uh, as in Central Asia, it even led to a development of national consciousness where there had been very little national consciousness before. So that's going some way back. But if you look at the longer term influences on political outcomes, I think you do have to go back to Stalin. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Professor, what would it be? I suppose it would be that um, it's important to engage with um, countries that you um, disagree with and that um, it is possible, um, of course, a lot depends on the quality of leadership. And, and so I would say one of the things that comes out of the book is uh, points about quality of leadership. And I don't mean only Gorbachev, there were other people uh, around him who were important. And uh, I think that Somebody like George Schultz was very important. Um, so the, 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 I would emphasize the importance of leadership, but, but definitely engagement. And um, I think that um, if you think that it was military power 
which was of decisive importance, that can also lead to some mistakes. And, um, you know, it may even have indirectly uh, been an influence on things like the uh, invasion of Iraq, which ended very badly. A number of um, post-Soviet Western interventions have done more harm than good. And um, so I I, I think um, engagement rather than um, military intervention uh, is important. Of course, in the long run, Western military strength combined with engagement um, was very important. And so in that sense, um, George Kennan was right. Going back to the late 1940s, when he advocated a policy of containment, that the West should be strong enough that the Soviet Union, at a time when they might have been tempted, would not be tempted to encroach any further into Western Europe. Um, but um, that had to be combined with a policy of seeing where you could find common ground. And it's also been the case that when uh, there has been more Western contact with a country like Russia, uh, this has led to greater tolerance and more liberalization in Russia. It's never been the case, it seems to me, that at a time when Russia has been isolated and vilified, that this has helped um, people who want to... um, make um, the country more tolerant, more liberal, more democratic. Upon that observation, Professor, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Brown. Thank you.